let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to sing and these songs that, Lord, declare our desire to trust you. We do want to trust you, Lord. You are trustworthy. In fact, you're the only person in this entire universe that is completely trustworthy, that is faithful, that has never broken a promise, that has never forsaken a loved one. You're the only one who has been faithful to what you have said. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your love for us, your willingness to send your Son so that we could be forgiven, so that we could sing songs of praise, so that we could have joy, have the burden of guilt of our sin lifted from us. Lord, I pray as we um, move now towards your word that you would help us to see and help us to understand, help us to know your truth and to be empowered to live it out by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past week, I read of a man uh, named Donald Dew who uh, bravely dove into Lake Michigan in order to save two young men who were drowning, two young boys. Uh, The boys made it back to shore, but uh, the 50-year-old pediatrician, Dr. Liu, did not. Uh, It reminded me, uh, his heroic act reminded me of uh, a similar circumstance. It happened over 50 years ago. It was on a lake in upper state New York where some folks were, uh, had been water skiing all day. They were boating back to the shore. The boat hit a wave, and a young girl and an older man were thrown out of the boat. The younger girl did not know how to swim. And so the older gentleman, who was also 50 as it turns out, uh, kept the girl afloat and waiting for the boat to come back around to get them. But because of fatigue, they'd been water skiing all day, and because he had a, a previous heart condition, uh, he succumbed. To the waters. They were able to retrieve the girl, but the man sank to the lake, bottom of the lake. That man's name was Dawson Trotman. He was a man who was used greatly by God. He began the Navigator's Ministry in 1933 as an outreach to those in the Navy. And by the time World War II came, there were over 1,000 navigators, on, or there were navigators in over 1,000 Navy ships and stations. And his ministry, that ministry, the Navigators, extended beyond the Navy and had a huge impact in the world. He was committed to evangelism. He's committed to one-on-one discipleship. And that commitment was infectious. He led and stirred up many others to, to follow in that commitment. One man said, What Orville and Wilbur Wright were to commercial flight, Dawson was to discipleship in the church. And Billy Graham said of him, I found uh, that I think Dawes had personally touched more lives than anybody that I've ever known. That was Billy Graham speaking. Dawson's desire and passion to share the gospel and to help others grow in Christ was what his life was all about. I read his biography, The Navigator. If you get a chance, I'd encourage you to read it too. It will definitely challenge and encourage you to think about and consider how you're investing your life. Robert Foster said in the introduction of that biography... Dawson did not do much writing. He was too busy making disciples. His monument was not left in marble, but in men. Not in books, but in methods for living by scriptural truth. Not in institutions, but in principles for multiplying Christian disciples around the world. I bring up Dawson Trotman this morning because he serves as a fitting introduction for our topic, which is making disciples. 
We're going to deviate today from Ephesians 4 to look at Matthew 28 together. So turn there in your Bibles with me. It's connected to what we've been talking about in Ephesians 4, in that it's focused on growing the body of Christ to maturity. That's been a theme that we've been discussing. We talked about last week how Christ himself is the source of that growth, but that his body, that his church, is the means, that we are the means to carry out that growth. In fact, in Ephesians 4.16, the main statement, the main sentence that Paul gave in that section was that the whole body causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And then that growth happens, that helping one another to mature in Christ happens according to the proper working of each individual part. Right? That Paul is talking about for the church to grow in Christ's likeness, we all together need to be functioning in the way that God has called us to. And last week we considered one aspect of, of that properly working part in mutual responsibility, the mutual responsibility we have to one another to exercise our spiritual gifts. Well, today we're going to look at another aspect of a properly working part in that we also are to be involved in mutual shepherding or discipleship. And Jesus himself called us to this in Matthew 28. So I would ask those of you who are able to please stand as we read God's word together. I'll be reading from Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Holy Spirit spoke through Matthew in saying, verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thank you. You may be seated. It's a familiar text. I'm sure many of you have probably heard a message or two from this very passage uh, exhorting you to consider evangelism, exhorting you to consider missions work and the importance of it and how we all need to be uh, focused on those things. And indeed, that is a key part of this passage. But today I want to look at it from the vantage point of how it applies to properly working parts. How is it that we all fit in to this commission? So today we're going to consider three parts of this command to make disciples. The call to make disciples, those commissioned to make disciples, And finally, the course or the method to make disciples. First, let's look at the call. These are the last words that Matthew gives in his gospel. They're the culmination of all that he has shared about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these words, he ends with, it's a post-resurrection appearance by Jesus to the disciples in Galilee. Now, Jesus had already appeared to them in Jerusalem just seven days after his resurrection. In fact, he appeared to several on the day of. That was back in Jerusalem, though. What is he doing up here in Galilee? In John 21, we also see some of them fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And I think Peter and John and some of the others have gotten some bad press over that because people have accused them of basically bailing out that once Jesus rose again, they saw him. Then they went back to their old jobs, went back to their former way of life. But I don't think that's why they were up there fishing in Galilee. If you look back earlier in Matthew 28... You remember the angel who was sitting on top of the stone that had been rolled away from the tomb and Mary Magdalene and Mary were there and the angel said to them this in verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead 
Behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And then as they were going to tell the disciples, Jesus appeared to them and he told them these words in verse 10. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. See, the disciples went up to Galilee because Jesus said, go up to Galilee. I'm going to meet you there. I think they were probably fishing there because they were hungry. Or perhaps they wanted to, while they were waiting for Jesus to uh, earn a little bit of income in order to support the ministry. But the disciples were up in Galilee because Jesus told them to go there. And he told them to go to a specific mountain. We don't know which one, but they knew. And the timing of this, some people aren't sure about it, at least had to be uh, not earlier than two weeks or so before, or after the resurrection because it would take a few days for them to get to, from Jerusalem to Galilee. It's, I think, 60, 70 miles, something like that. They had to walk. And Jesus had met with them a week after. And so it would at least be two weeks probably before the earliest that he could meet with them. And the latest would probably be maybe five weeks or so. Because after 40 days, if you remember, Jesus appeared to them again at the ascension, right? When he ascended into heaven. And again, it would take a few days for them to have gotten back down to Jerusalem. So sometime between you know, 15, 35 days, somewhere in there, this event takes place. And Matthew records for us just a few sentences of what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. But oh, how important these sentences are. They really are Jesus' final commission, final command to these men. Jesus begins in verse 18 saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That echoes back to what we saw back in Ephesians 1.20, where it was said of Christ that He has been seated above all rule and power and authority and dominion in the heavenlies. Jesus is the supreme authority. And the resurrection was validation of that. The resurrection was the Father putting His stamp upon Christ's ministry, upon His sacrifice, and exalting Jesus, saying, He is the One. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord of the universe. And Jesus makes that proclamation... Right up front, because the next thing he does is he says, based on that authority in verse 19, I have something now you must do. After the great claim of verse 18, he makes the great commission in verse 19. In that commission, he gives one primary command. What is it? What's the main command that he gives here? Make disciples. Now, it looks like two commands there. We see go and make disciples, but go actually in the original Greek is a participle. That means it's subordinate to the main verb, which is make disciples. It's given in the form of a command because it has that impact, right? If, if I were to tell you, open up your Bibles and read Matthew 28, the main th- thing I want you to do is to read it, right? But in order to do that, you need to open up the Bible. That's the same idea here. It's translated as a command because you've got to get up and go in order to make disciples. So the focus isn't go here. The focus is make disciples, Jesus said that in verse 19. That's his main thrust. That is what he wants them to do. That is the key command. But what did Jesus mean by that? What did he mean disciple? The word carries the idea of a a student, a pupil, a learner, an apprentice. uh, the, The Pharisees called themselves disciples of Moses. It says in Mark 4, chapter 2, verse 18, that John the Baptist had disciples. He had followers. He had those who followed his teachings. The the Pharisees had disciples. It says in the same verse. But when Christ used the term disciple, his expectation was something more than a pupil, something more than simply a student or a follower of his teachings. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to follow me, he must, what? Deny himself, take up? 
his cross daily and follow me. Or in Luke 14, 27, Jesus later said, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in students or having a fan club or building a large friend base on Facebook or having a large following on Twitter. He wasn't about that at all. He didn't want casual connections. To be a disciple of Jesus meant that you were going to give up everything to follow him. To be a disciple of Jesus meant that you were going to imitate him, to follow his example, to have a relationship with him. Only those willing to give up all could be Jesus' disciple. Only those who have denied themselves could be his disciple. Only those who follow him can be his disciple. Jesus was saying, only those willing to die for me can be my disciple. That is a high commitment. Being a disciple of Jesus, it's not some higher level of Christianity. It's not like there's several divisions like in baseball. We don't have the regular Christian division for the amateur Christian. And then over here we have the disciple division for the super Christian. There's only one division. If you are a Christian, you're a disciple. If you claim to be a disciple, then that is you're claiming to be a Christian. They are synonymous. They're interchangeable. And to be a disciple means that you have forsaken everything to follow Jesus. Being a disciple means that you're characterized by submission to Christ and a pursuit of holiness. Being a disciple means that you put what Christ wants above what you want. Being a disciple means that you actively and voraciously eliminate any hindrance, any distraction that gets in the way of you following Christ. Jesus said in John 8.31, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Discipleship is obedience. It's commitment. It is forsaking all to give yourself over to Jesus. He's only going to have true disciples. And that's what's at the heart of the Great Commission. Make true, genuine disciples. Those who are actively loyal, sold out, repentant, believing followers of Jesus Christ. This is radical. If you really think about what Jesus is calling for it. This is radical. To be a disciple of Christ, a Christian, one who follows Jesus, means we have forsaken everything to do that. And that's why Jesus said, we need to consider carefully anyone who might want to be a Christian, might want to be a disciple of Christ. Several times he told people, hey, you need to stop and think about it first. If you remember in Luke fourteen twenty seven that I just read, right after he said, whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple... He then says this, Which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus then goes on to describe a king who was getting ready to go out for battle and that he would count and consider how many were in his army and how many were in the other army before making that commitment. And then he ends with these words. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. What's Jesus saying here? To be his disciple means it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything. Are you sure you want to make that commitment? Because it's a total commitment of your total life. Again, Jesus isn't interested in half-hearted commitments. He wants all of you. 
And I think some of you here this morning really need to think about this. Whether you are a genuine disciple of Christ. I didn't say member of Calvary. I didn't say that you call yourself a Christian. Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus? Are you one who has genuinely given everything up to follow Him? And again, that's all by the grace of God. On our part, it's that faith and willingness to turn from our former life to follow Him. And then He provides the grace to do that. But what that life looks like is somebody sold out for the Lord Jesus. And looking back at Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, that command to make this kind of a disciple, Jesus then tells them how. How they're to go about doing it. And He gives two ways. Baptizing and teaching. The first way is to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, a reference to being immersed in water. And again, that was the first act of obedience for somebody who was repenting from their sin and placing their faith in Christ, was to to get dunked. Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And a few verses later, that's what we see happens. That over 3,000 people came to the Lord Jesus, and it says those who had received His Word were baptized. Baptism really is an immediate response to salvation. It's not an act of salvation, but it's a response to it. And it's really synonymous with being a Christian, because remember in those days, and think about that, when Jesus is giving this commission in Israel and Jerusalem, when you went out there and made a public profession of your faith by being dunked in the river or dunked in a body of water, you were telling everyone around you, I'm now a follower of Jesus Christ. And it was a little different then than it is now. You know, we have this nice, comfortable uh, uh, tank up here. Usually it's warm when we're in there doing baptisms. People around are very warm and encouraging, and a lot of times we'll applaud, or just the encouragement we receive from their testimony. But back then, if you made a public profession out openly in the water... You were opening yourself up for persecution and attack. Oh, there's another one of those Christians. There's another one of those followers of Jesus Christ. So baptism really, especially in that time, really was synonymous with being a Christian. You were giving up all to follow Christ, and that was being shown through that act of baptism. So when Jesus says baptizing here, he's saying that's a person who's saved. That's a person who's carrying out that commitment through baptism. But to be baptized meant you had to be saved. And to be saved meant you had to respond to the gospel. To respond to the gospel means you had to have heard the gospel. And have heard the gospel means that somebody needed to proclaim it to you. Faith comes by hearing, right? And hearing by the word of Christ. Well, that's the first part of this great commission that Jesus is telling. You need to go and bring the gospel to them so that they would be saved. And that would show itself in baptism. And many stop here. As they talk about the Great Commission, many uh, then launch from this point into the importance of evangelism, the priority of evangelism, and the fact that we need to do that. And it is indeed critical and necessary. But notice that Jesus didn't stop there in describing how to make disciples. He added one more way, not only in baptizing them, not only in bringing them to salvation, he also says, but also teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. I often hear people say that the only reason we're left here on earth is to evangelize. That God has left us here because there's no evangelism in heaven. But that we will praise God in heaven. That we will have perfect fellowship with one another in heaven. That we won't gossip against each other in heaven. Imagine that. Every time your name's brought up in heaven, it's going to be for good things, not for bad. Unique experience. 
But that's all part of what's going to happen in glory. But here on earth, evangelism is the only difference. We need to be committed to that. That's why God left us here. They describe that as a key priority. And I understand the point. And I agree completely that evangelism is a key priority for us here. It is something we need to be committed to do. But it's not the only priority. It's not the only reason God has left us here. Because if you look back at the Great Commission, Jesus didn't command us to share the gospel. He commanded us to make disciples. Part of that is sharing the gospel. An important part of that is sharing the message of salvation, that we can have forgiveness through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all Jesus said to do. He didn't say, hey, tell them the gospel, hand them a track, go through a prayer with them, wish them well. Thanks for for giving your time. He didn't stop there. He didn't stop with evangelism. He said, you need to make disciples. Jesus wasn't interested just in salvation, but in sanctification. And again, this doesn't lower the priority of evangelism. I'm not downplaying that at all. He wants us to glorify Him, not only in sharing the gospel, but in assisting one another to live it out. That's part of His commission. That's what He's after. He wants us to share our faith in this world and also to live out our faith in this world. That's really the purpose of the church, to be a worshiping community of Christ's followers who make disciples of all the nations. So Jesus adds in verse 20 that to make disciples means that you also need to be teaching them all that I have commanded you, teaching them to obey, to observe all that I have commanded you. This takes us back to who a disciple is, right? It's not just a person who has accepted Jesus as Savior. It is one who follows Him as Lord. It is one who is submitted to Him as a true disciple. Turn to Colossians 1, 28 for a minute. I want you to see the aim of Paul's ministry. You know, talking about this whole subject of of making disciples. We know Paul, right? He's a supreme evangelist, isn't he? I mean, that guy, he would go into a place, share the gospel, share about Jesus, go through persecution, often get kicked out of town, and then he'd go to the next place and do the same thing. This was a man who lived and breathed sharing the gospel. And it's interesting to notice, why did he do that? What was the aim of his ministry ultimately? What was Paul driving at? Was it to make sure that the gospel was proclaimed to as many people as possible and then he would move on? Well, look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says there, We proclaim him, there's the proclamation, the sharing of Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Here's the reason. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose, this is why also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Paul here is really restating the Great Commission. He's really telling us salvation and sanctification, right? We proclaim Him. We declare the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And we do that by admonishing, by teaching, by giving instruction. And notice he says the purpose is not just so that we can present every man to Christ, but that we can present every man complete or mature or made perfect in Christ. That's the goal of discipleship. That's really what Jesus was after. That's what the aim of Paul's ministry was, was to make people like Jesus, to grow them into the image of Christ. That's why we've been saved, so that we would be holy and blameless, so that we'd be zealous for good deeds. 
Jesus was wanting us to aim at more than just presenting the message of truth, but helping one another to live it out so that we would look like Christ, so that we would not be, you know, Bob Powell Jr.'s or Kevin Roberts Jr.'s, but that we would be Jesus Jr.'s, that we would look like Him. Great Commission is not just a call to evangelism. It's a call to making people like Jesus. That's what Christ was after. Paul would do this, right? He, he would often give the gospel, but he didn't leave it there. What would he do? He tried to stay there as long as he could before he got the boot. And then if he did have to leave, he would write letters back to these churches. And then when he got the chance, he would try to come back and visit them. Several of his journeys, Paul repeats places that he went. Now, why does he do that? Why didn't he just always go to new places to share the gospel? Because he recognized that making disciples was also helping them to be sanctified. So he would return to these places in order to encourage them in their walks. He would go back to teach them all that Christ has commanded so that they would obey. The great commission to make disciples is first to tell them how to be saved and then to help them and teach them how to follow Christ. An important question then is who... Who is this commission given to? How do we connect to it? Was this just something for the apostles? Was this just something for the leadership of the church? Was this just something for the New Testament church? How are we connected to this mandate? We've looked at the call. Let's consider now those who are commissioned. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen indicates that the 11 disciples are there in Galilee. But, but was there anybody else? Was anyone else there? A lot of people have thought about this. 1 Corinthians 15.5 is an interesting passage. It talks about Paul there. He's describing the various appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. And he says there, starting in verse 5, that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, that is Paul, also. Now, we can connect some of these appearances, right? The ones to the disciples early on and and to the apostles at the end when he ascended and to James, to Peter, to Paul. But that one of 500, where did that happen? When did he appear to the 500? The, The Gospels or Acts don't seem to indicate when that event took place. Some people believe and many think that that those 500 Jesus appeared to in Galilee when he gave the Great Commission. And there are a few reasons for that. One is that um, at least Mary Magdalene and Mary were probably there because if you remember, the angel told them in 20, Matthew 28, 7 that they too would see Jesus in Galilee, that they were to go to tell the disciples to go there as well. Also, too, if you consider it would seem strange, wouldn't it, for Jesus to meet the disciples in Jerusalem, then meet them again up in Galilee, and then meet them again down in Jerusalem at the ascension. I think maybe what has happened there is Jesus wanted to have those believers who were in Galilee to be gathered together so that they could see him, see the resurrected Lord. Can't be dogmatic about this, but I think it makes sense. And it would also explain Matthew twenty-eight seventeen, where it says when Jesus came there, they worshipped him and then some were doubtful. Well, the disciples had already seen Jesus, many of them more than once. But if there were a crowd of 500 there who were in Galilee, it is likely that many of them had not seen Jesus. Again, I can't be certain on these things, but it appears that way. I think maybe that there were more than just the disciples here, there on the mountain when they received the Great Commission. Something to think about. 
But again, considering, I want us to look at, back to our question, was the commission confined to just those who hear it, whether it was the 11 disciples or the 11 disciples and the two women or the 500? Was it just confined to them? We can be confident the Great Commission was not. It extends to all of us, to the church throughout the ages. And there are several reasons for this. One is, if Jesus intended that Great Commission just to be for those who heard them that day, particularly disciples, that would seem a little odd, wouldn't it? What happens when they die? It just, hopefully things carry on. Secondly, upon the disciples' return to Jerusalem, remember they went back to Jerusalem, they waited for the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascended. What did they do in Acts 2? Peter preached a sermon, and then what happened? I heard it a little bit. What happened? The church, right? People got saved, and the church was born. We're going to look at that a little bit later. The disciples established the church in order to carry out the commission for which Jesus gave them. They were the foundation of the church. The church was to build upon the ministry they started so that when they passed on, the commission would continue. And thirdly, even though Paul, he was not out Galilee, but did he not take on the Great Commission as a mandate of his own life? That's what we saw in Colossians 1.28. In addition, there were many others to Paul, Philip and Stephen and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and Epaphroditus and Timothy and Barnabas and Silas. So many others that we see took on that great commission themselves, proclaiming the gospel and assisting in helping others to grow in Christ. The Ephesians, the Thessalonians were those noted that were doing that as well. Also note too at the end of verse 20, Jesus says, I will be with you not just until you die. He says, I will be with you what? Always, even to the end of the age. I think that's a promise Jesus extended to us. And then finally, if you look at the command itself, he says, make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And guess what? He just gave them a command in the verse, right? To make disciples. So guess what was going to be passed along to those disciples? To make more. And there are several uh, commands in the New Testament that indicate our responsibility to make disciples. One of them we've been looking at, Ephesians 4.12, which said that we are being equipped to the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That is discipleship. That is what teaching others to obey all that I've commanded you looks like, to help them be mature in Christ. There are a couple other passages that indicate the same. See, we have a mandate ourselves to carry out. Jesus wasn't just speaking to those on the hill that day. He was speaking to His church. He was speaking to all of us. He was speaking to you. And what He said was this, make disciples. It was a command that was given not just to the early church, but to all of us. And you and I, that means you and I are just as much responsible to carry out this command as those who first heard it on that hill. Put yourself there. Jesus is speaking to you if you are part of His church. We are all, all of us are to help bring people to faith, and then assist them to grow in the faith. That's a responsibility that we all have. We are commissioned to do that. And that brings us to our third point then. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean that I am commissioned to make disciples? I mean, does that mean I have to have a small group? Does that mean I'm supposed to be out on the streets every Saturday night with the evangelism team sharing the gospel? I and mean, what does that mean? Does that mean I've got to give up, sell everything, go overseas to be a missionary? What does it mean to make disciples? How does that connect to all of us here in the body? Well, that's what I want to talk about. Because when you hear the term discipleship, you often 
picture, I think, you know, a, an older believer with a younger believer and the older one passing along things, teaching things, instruction, helping them spend time in the Word and prayer. And that's oftentimes the, the, younger, uh, the younger believer is, is called a disciple. It's kind of like the Jedi Master and his young Padawan, right? Is that the picture? Is that what that discipleship means? Is that what all of us are supposed to be doing? Well, that is a part, but I don't think that's entirely what Jesus was picturing here. When he says to make disciples, it's not just one person discipling another. It is the whole body of Christ together that makes a disciple of each other. We're all, as a church, to make disciples. We're collectively, as a body, to do that. And there are various ways that God has designed for us to do that. We talked about one last week. One of the ways that we make disciples is exercising our spiritual gifts. Another way, and it's the first one Jesus mentioned here, is evangelism. We make disciples, obviously, by sharing the gospel, right? We don't make disciples by just focusing on what happens here within the body, but also what happens outside the body. And we're called to share it to the lost. And we need to be praying, praying for those who don't know Christ. We need to be praying and then taking steps to make opportunity to bring up spiritual conversation with them. And I know that's difficult. That's why we need to start with prayer. Prayer not only for them, but prayer for ourselves. As Jesus did, that he would raise up those to work in the harvest. I remember when I was first saved early on, I lived with three other roommates. And I'll just say, we weren't all living the most moral of lives together. They had seen me in various activities that I won't mention to you here now before I got saved. And it was hard for me to, how do I talk to these guys? How do I share the gospel with them? I felt desire to do that, but I was kind of embarrassed or ashamed. I didn't know what to say. And so one day we're sitting together, getting ready to watch something or whatever, and I just kind of blurted out, so what do you guys think of Jesus? Great intro, man. Great transition. Just smoothly entered in. I didn't know what to say, but I thought, I've got to say something. And so it worked. We started talking about Jesus. And, you know, it was great. You know, after a while, uh, all three of them made a profession. And I think a couple of them are still walking with the Lord today. That wasn't because of me. Because believe me, that was probably the most clumsy and awkward gospel presentation that ever existed in the history of mankind. But you know what? It's just as I've been praying for them and asking God to help me. We need to do the same. Just bring up Jesus. What do you think of Jesus? (laughs) Talk to them. Now, if you need help... You're like, well, I don't know what to say. I know, okay, I'll bring them up. I'll pray for them. But what do I tell them? I have a testimony myself. I know that the key is the, the cross and that you can be forgiven through, through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on your behalf and, and that we need to turn from our sins. I understand those things, but they're going to have a lot of questions. And how do I present it in a clear way? Well, that's why we have training here. So many opportunities. There's evangelism class that we have. And I know Bob Powell. You come up every week now, Bob. You're in shepherding moment too. You're famous. Bob Powell. Helps to lead that class. Go see him. And say, Bob, help me out with this. Go on Saturday night, 6 o'clock. I bring it up a lot for a reason. We need to go on Saturday night. We can watch the gospel as it's being presented. We can participate, hand out tracts, do various things. That will stir and move you towards proclaiming him, proclaiming Christ. But pray and then take steps to be part of answering that prayer. Another way that the body makes disciples is by imitation. That one-on-one interaction that I talked about earlier, that is necessary, that is important. 
There are several passages which talk about that, which talk about following one another's examples. Philippians 3.17, Paul said, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Find others in the church and follow their example as they're walking with Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul said, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It's that life-on-life interaction. Others that are walking with the Lord or, or moving towards that, that we need to be spending time with. You need to look for them. You need to be in close relationships with more mature believers. And also, you need to be in relationships with less mature believers so they can watch you. Scary as that might seem, but that's part of this process of making disciples. Imitation. Imitation of Jesus in the lives of His people. Even in those times where we blow it. Let's say I do gossip about somebody, and it's been known to happen once in a while. And there's someone else with me, and he sees that, and I realize that wasn't good. That wasn't right. How I respond to that can be an instruction for that person. Even in our sin, we can be an example to one another. Not imitating the sin, but how we deal with it. We need to be in one another's lives. Isn't this what Titus 2.3 tells us regarding older and younger women? Let me read what Paul said there. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved in much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject, so the word of God might not be dishonored. There it is practically laid out very specifically. You older women... Notice I didn't say old, older, mature, experienced. Those who maybe your children are nearing out of the home or almost there. You're given a specific instruction and responsibility to the younger women here. You've been given much. And God expects you to encourage them, to spend some time with them. You You know how hard it is. It's a lot even harder now trying to raise children and be a godly wife in the midst of this culture. It is such a challenge. God has called you to do that. How are you filling your time now that your kids are moving on out of the home? And I know we still spend time with our children. That doesn't end. But how are you using the time that God has given you now that you don't have to do the diapers and the, make all the meals and everything like that that you used to? Clean all the laundry. How are you spending that time? There are younger women here who need you. They need you. Younger women, have you pursued an older woman or two to talk with, to seek counsel from, to just let them know, I'm having a hard time. Don't let being embarrassed, don't let feeling bad, like, oh, they're so busy, I don't want to bother them with my burdens. God's told them they need to be bothered with your burdens. He wants that to be taking place. We have a ministry here to facilitate that. It's called Moms. Every Tuesday morning. Where older and younger women gather together to build relationships so that the older women may be carrying out and living out Titus 2 so that the younger women could be encouraged. I encourage you, it's starting up on September 11th. There's sign-ups out front. Sign up for that class. An incredibly godly woman is going to be teaching in there too as a bonus. But they're older women spending time with younger women. That's what it's been designed to do. That's what God has commanded. That's how He's designed His church to function. And men, what relationships are you in? Do you have an older godly man in your life? And by older, it may not be in age, but may be in maturity in Christ. 
Is there a guy that you're spending consistent time with? Are you spending time with a guy that may be less mature? And then you hear what I'm saying there, time, spending time with. Do you meet with another man or other men on a regular basis? Maybe not necessarily in a small group, but do you meet with other men for the purpose of accountability, spending time in the Word together, prayer, fellowship? If not, how come? Why not? Are you too busy? Is it really the fact that you have no time? Do you, do you think you can make it on your own when God has designed the church to function differently than that? He's designed us to disciple one another as a body. And that requires that we are with one another. I mean, just think about what if Jesus had that attitude? What if he said, well, I can only spend a certain little amount of time with you guys each week. That's all I've got. Boy, how would the disciples have turned out then? They had enough problems with all the time Jesus spent with them. Just think if he had limited that. Another way we make disciples is by living out the one another commands with each other. There's over 70 of them in the New Testament. All ways that are given, not just to those gifted, but to all of us and how we are to behave and be and treat and be around one another. These are to be employed so the discipleship happens. Let me just read a few of them to you. God has told us to be at peace with one another, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, to give preference to one another in honor, to accept one another as Christ has accepted you, to admonish or counsel one another, to have the same care for one another, to serve one another through love, to not have lawsuits with one another, to not challenge or envy one another, to be kind to one another, to forgive one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, to be subject to one another in love, to bear with one another, to teach and admonish one another, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to encourage one another daily, to exhort one another, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to not forsake gathering together, to not complain against one another, to confess your sins with one another, to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And 20 more that are just focused on loving one another. All of these are part of the disciple-making process of how we are teaching one another to obey all that Christ commanded as we live out these one another's within the church. And again, they weren't just given to the spiritual elites, right? They weren't given to the super-Christian division of disciple. They were given to all of us, all of you to do these things with one another. Again, just think about it. If these things were happening, all those things that I listed, that I read from the Scriptures, if those things were taking place, if we really were carrying out the one another's, if we really were exercising our spiritual gifts, if we really were having that one-on-one time with one another and and these kinds of relationships, mentoring relationships, the older women with the younger and the, the more godly mature men with the less mature, what would this place look like? It's happened before. It's not like it's never taken place in history. Look at Acts 2. I mentioned already earlier, we'll turn there for a moment, Acts 2, and I want you to see this picture, the picture of what a disciple-making church looks like. It happens to be the very first church when it was established in Jerusalem. Acts 2, be starting with verse 41. And keep in mind, the Great Commission, fresh in the minds of the apostles... And notice how this first church functioned. Verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. I guess the first church was really a mega church. 3,000 people. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship 
and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Brothers and sisters, that is what making disciples looks like. The gospel going forth. People confessing their sins, coming to Christ. The church gathering together for instruction, to pray together, to fellowship with one another, to have meals together, to listen to the apostles as they would teach. People from all walks of life involved with one another. And and did you notice something? That the time they spent with one another, was it just in the temple? What does it say there explicitly? They gathered together in the temple and house to house. And were they only spending time together one, one day a week? What does it say there? Day after day, they were continuing to gather together. They weren't just meeting in one location at what time in the week. They were true disciples because it was life on life happening. They lived life together. They spent time with one another outside just their special times of worship together at church in the temple. They spent time life on life. Jesus said, teach them to observe all that I commanded. He didn't just say, teach them all I commanded. Teach them to observe it. Because discipleship happens outside the classroom. Discipleship happens not just in the instruction phase, which is the critical and foundational part, but it happens in helping each other to live out that instruction. That's what Jesus said. Teach them to obey, to observe, to keep all that I commanded you. What happens in these walls really is just a part of our time together. House to house, day after day. We can't be confined to just one sermon, one Sunday school class, one small group time together, and maybe a meal with one another each week. I mean, is that how Jesus approached it? Did he have pull out his you know, day timer or iPad or whatever and say, okay, I got, you guys can come uh, Wednesday night. I got an hour and a half I can give you every week. Just show up here, right here at this well. And we'll have a little time of instruction and prayer together, share some prayer requests, and I'll I'll help you with that. Is that how Jesus did it? He spent time with them, didn't he? He lived with them. He ate with them. He lived out his life before them. He stayed up late with them. If you calculate, you you know how many hours Jesus probably spent with those guys? If we say around three years he was with them, if we say eight hours a day, it's probably more. That's still about 9,000 hours with Jesus. 9,000 hours. Now, if we think about us, maybe if we're pretty committed and we're coming here on Sundays and maybe we have a small group, Bible study, time of fellowship or ministry outside the church, maybe we're five hours a week. You know how many years it would take to get to 9,000 hours? At least 35 years. 9,000 hours. And that's with us. They were with Jesus. 9,000 hours and probably more. But they got a chance to see Jesus when he was hungry, when he was tired, and how he dealt with situations in life. They got to see what he did when people who were annoying or burdensome would come up to him and how he responded to them. He would get to see how he he responds to those who are proclaiming false teaching. 
They were living life on life with each other. Jesus didn't make discipleship a classroom experience. He didn't make it simply a time of instruction, but of life on life instruction. Is that going on among us? It's hard to do that unless we are going life on life. As Proverbs 17 talks about, right? Iron sharpening iron. So one man sharpens another. There's friction. There's activity. There's togetherness. Making disciples means investing in one another. It means making time for one another. It means being with one another, not just here, but in our homes. And I know that's difficult. I know our culture has put a lot of barriers and hindrances to that. We're spread out all over the place. But this is the model. This is what the disciples set up and the apostles designed in their wisdom through the leading of the Holy Spirit that we will be spending this kind of time together because they realize that's what has to happen for true discipleship to take place within His body. It's not just those one-on-one times. It's the whole body investing within itself. And one or two gatherings a week, just it just doesn't cut it. 35 years if we did it that way. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, I mean, did, is this how He approached it? Did He say, fellas, it sure would be great if... You know, if you could take a little time, share the gospel, get to know some other people, teach them a little bit, help them where you can. To how the Lord approached it? Did Jesus just make a proposal? Did he give a request? Did he say, I got a favor, guys? No, how did he approach it? He said, hey, guys, I am the Lord of the universe, so you need to go and make disciples. It was a command. It wasn't a... A a simple favor request that he's making. He was calling them and all of us. This is what I want to commission you to do for life. Make disciples. Make disciples. It's a command. He's commanding you to be involved in the body. He's commanding you to share the gospel. He's commanding you to use your spiritual gift. He's commanding you to invest yourself in the lives of one another. He's commanding you to teach and serve and love and exhort and confess your sins and, and gather with each other. He's commanding you to invest yourself. He's commanding you to help others be like Him. He's commanding you to make disciples as a pattern of your life. And there's no room for laziness here. There's no room for selfishness. There's no room to to seek a life of comfort and ease. That's coming later. There's no room for excuses. Because, brothers and sisters, this is no suggestion. Jesus, our Lord and Master, who died for us, commands us, each one of us, if you're a Christian, if you are a disciple, that you're going to be in the process of making disciples, that you're to be committed to the, your gift and the one another's and spending time one-on-one with people and being involved in the body and sharing the gospel. It's our priority. Because remember, in Ephesians, when we turn from the first three chapters focusing on who we are in Christ to the last three chapters of what we do in Christ, what's the first thing Paul addressed? He talks about marriage and and family and and relationships and spiritual warfare, dealing with conflict. He does address those issues. But what was the first thing he drew drew our attention to? The body of Christ. That the body we would be pursuing to preserve unity in the body. That we'd be doing work of service in the body. That we'd be working properly within the body. That we would cause the growth of the body. The priority is the church. The priority is our commitment to the body of Christ. Your family and your marriage and your job and your hobbies, even your own personal walk. 
They are second to the church. Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying they aren't important or not a priority. They definitely are. But it is the church, the bride of Christ. You know, so many people tend to talk about my priority is first my time with the Lord, then my spouse, then my children, then my job, then the church. It needs to be the other way. My responsibility is the bride of Christ. Because that's what Jesus has designed to make disciples. That's what He has called us to. That's what He died for. That's what He wants us to be participating in so that we could grow the body of Christ. It doesn't mean these other things are not important. But our lives are to be the church. It's the only thing Christ has called upon to carry out the Great Commission is His church. It's the only entity that Christ has put together to redeem the lost and then to help them grow to be more like Him. The church is how He wants to do it. We're commanded to make disciples as a church, as a body of believers. So are you in a men's small group or ladies' Bible study or fellowship group or serving in a ministry here consistently? Are you spending time with others on a regular basis so that there is that that life-on-life happening? Is that going on? If the disciples needed Jesus for 9,000 hours or more, how much time do we need with each other? (laughs) A lot more than that. And I don't mean just showing up. I don't mean just are you a member of a Bible study, you're a member here at the church. What are you doing when you're there? How are you investing and being part of this disciple-making process when you are spending time with each other? What is more important than the bride of Christ? You know, one of Dawson's more well-known sermons and more powerful sermons is called Born to Reproduce. And there Dawson Trotman repeated a simple question. He asked it several times. He said, where is your man? Where is your man? Right now, we need to ask that of ourselves. Where is our other person or people that we are investing in for the kingdom? Who are you participating in to make disciples? How are you evangelizing? How are you doing the work of service in the body of Christ? How are you helping others to walk with Jesus? And it's my prayer that we all would have Trotman's heart for making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what properly working parts do. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I know my words have not been adequate. I I would ask, Lord, that your spirit would stir in our hearts to really understand this command, to take it to heart, Lord, and to live out how you have gifted us and how you have called us so that we would be making disciples. Lord, help us. Give us passion, Lord, to share your truth with others, to be involved in each other's lives so we be helping one another to grow in Christ. Help us to be committed to proclaiming the goodness of your Son to those in the world who need to know. God, I pray that you would make Calvary a, a disciple-making church, that, Lord, we would reflect what the picture we see in Acts 2 of that first church, that, God, you would do such a movement here that we would be spending as much time as possible, Lord, with each other, life on life, helping one another to walk with you. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given your spirit to empower us to do that, that you aren't beating us over the head with this command, but that you enable us by your grace to live it out. Because, Lord, we need that. Life is hard. We are broken vessels. 
Please do a work in us. We would ask and beg you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.